on this episode of This Calling. Hi, I'm the Reverend Kira Austin Young, and I'm the priest in charge of St. Anne's Episcopal Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome to This Calling, conversations about vocation. I'm Chris Arnold, a Christian who used to be an atheist, a software engineer who became a priest. I believe God calls us each to our own unique path in this life. I love to listen to the stories of others, where they are, how they got there, and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I talk to Kira about her journey from Texas to Tennessee and into the priesthood. Here's our conversation. Well, hello, Kira. We have not talked in a while. When was the last time we talked? Probably on... Yeah, I was trying um, to think it was... um, Was it maybe the podcast about the Olympics? Yeah, Popping Collars. Popping Collars. Like like three years ago? Yeah, I was going to say now that we've got a new Olympics coming up. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, how are you? What's new? I'm doing well. Um, You know, just busy with ministry and life and and all those good things. Yeah, are you ready for Lent yet? I am not <laughs> ready for Lent yet. I actually okay. so we just finished our diocesan convention and our annual parish meeting this past weekend and in my mind I was like just don't think about Lent until after this weekend. So oh, well, um, sorry to bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> so you are a priest, but you haven't always been a priest. So I want to hear how you became you and how you wound up in uh, in Nashville as the, the priest in charge of St. Anne's. So yeah, take, well, that's, take me back. Uh, take, you, take you back. Well, yeah. when I was a child, <laughs> <laughs> um, but seriously, I, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. I attended an Episcopal school growing up from sort of pre-K through sixth grade uh, where we prayed morning prayer every morning, um, sang, I was a lector, um, just very, very kind of involved in uh, church, though it was really more school, uh, though we did attend church on Sundays occasionally as well. Um, and then I, I think the first like inklings around a ministerial vocation came to me when I was actually in a Methodist church and I was attending a Methodist church with some friends. Um, had gotten very involved there, doing all the things, handbell choir, youth choir, mission trips, ski trips, youth group, uh, so on and so forth. And I remember sitting in the choir balcony and seeing the pastor, the senior pastor, up in the pulpit of this very large suburban um, United Methodist Church and thinking, I wonder if I could do that. How old were you? What what age was this? Uh, probably sixteen or so, maybe a little younger. Oh, okay. And I started kind of asking some questions just about, um, you know, to his credit, that a senior pastor of a very very large United Methodist Church uh, took about an hour with me, a youth in his church, and asked answered all my questions, which were basically along the lines of like, so what do you actually do all week? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I mostly saw him on a Sunday, you know, giving giving a sermon or otherwise leading worship. 
Um, and I knew he probably did other things during the week. I just didn't know necessarily what they were or what that, um, what that looked like. And if I was kind of thinking about, is this a calling? Is this what I might want to do with my life? Um, you know, I wanted to know what the other parts looked like as well. Yeah. <laughs> the hidden life. The hidden life. The, the life that most of the congregation doesn't see. Yeah. Um, I mean, even now I know that most of the congregation doesn't see sort of what I do um, during the week. But uh, from there, uh, you know, did some kind of beginning discernment stuff uh, with with mentors and things like that. And then um, I was also uh, pursuing classical singing uh, as oh. a bit of a, a hobby slash vocation as well. And so ended up going to boarding school in Interlochen, Michigan for the last two years of my high school. Um, and where I sang and decided to uh, go to college to pursue a Bachelor of Music degree in vocal performance um, and kind of put the the ministerial thing a little bit to the side, though I was still uh, involved in, in church and uh, found that, you know, thought uh, religion was and Christianity was a very important part of my life. Uh, so I got to college and was going to be, you know, an opera singer. And uh, somewhere in the to the first two years of that, I I also got very involved in um, our campus ministry, the Episcopal campus ministry at Rice Canterbury, and my also my great uncle who was an Episcopal priest and a very formative person in my life, um, basically kind of a grandfather to my brother and I, um, my brother and me. And he had died my senior year of high school. So as I was kind of making the transition to college, I thought, you know, I should maybe go back to the Episcopal church, like for Uncle Jim's sake. And um, so I started getting involved at Rice Canterbury. And then there was a moment where I was um, not really feeling the whole doing... uh, being a singer for the rest of my life, like trying to make that a career. And I was talking to my mom on the phone and I was standing in the parking lot of the Shepherd School of Music and just like crying because like, you know, I was having kind of an existential crisis. And um, I said, I don't think I want to be a singer. And she said, well, okay, um, what do you think you want to do? And somewhere, something inside of me said, well, I think I want to be a priest. And she was like, okay. (laughs) Um, Huh. Do you think she was really okay with it? Yeah. I mean, you know, she'd grown up, her, her uncle was a priest. So that wasn't a, something that was terribly foreign. Um, and and I think she was more maybe just sort of surprised than than anything. Had you ever expressed any interest to her? You talked to the Methodist pastor, you said. Have you shared any of this with her? Or was this like the first she'd heard of it? It may have been the first that she'd really <laughs> heard of it, or like I'd actually kind of said it that directly. 
Um, cause again, like when you're in high school, it's, it's high school. You're kind of think you're look, working through a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, but to kind of say it again at that point, like that directly, um, I think she was like, oh, okay, maybe this is something to take fairly seriously. So what was your next step? Um, I'm again, I kind of met with my uh, campus missioner and sort of got the lay of the land in terms of what a formal discernment process might look like. Um, I did a kind of pathways to ministry internship program at my, the church where I'd grown up, St. Michael's and all angels in Dallas, Texas. Um, and talked with the rector there and kind of said, Hey, should I do this here in Dallas or should I move my membership to my church in Houston? And he suggested that I go ahead and move um, my membership to my church in Houston and do the, do my discernment process there. So I did and did you know, got a parish discernment committee put together, um, had all of those meetings. Some of this feels like it was like a lifetime ago. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm like, how did this all happen? Um, <laughs> but uh, just kind of slowly like ticked off the boxes of the things I was supposed to do. Um I I had big plans, actually. Here was my plan. My plan was that I was going to go to Yale for divinity school and get my Master's of Divinity and a Master of Sacred Music degree, uh, sort of do like a joint thing there. And then I would still be singing and still be involved kind of in music, which was such an important part of my life. Yeah. You didn't want to put that that dream completely off. Yeah. I mean, it was such a huge part of my, um, kind of my, my spirituality and sort of how I engaged with the liturgy and with the biblical texts and other devotional texts, um, that it was hard for me to imagine just kind of like not singing. Um, but of course plans are, you know, they're just that they, (laughs) Very, God sort of laughs at them most of the time. Um, And I ended up meeting a gentleman who um, we got engaged to be married and he was going uh, through medical school. And so uh, we decided that this was something worth, uh, worth pursuing. So after I graduated from college, he still had another year of medical school. So I hung around Houston, I got a job as um, in the special liability group at Travelers Insurance, where we handled mostly environmental claims, including a lot of asbestos and uh, asbestos-related claims. Did you have any training for that at all? Like, how how did you wind up doing that? Um, basically I applied and convinced them that I could learn, uh, pretty quickly and, um, that I was smart enough to figure it out, which I was. Um, but there was one point in my job where I was kind of looking through the files and, and reading everything. And I just thought, oh no, I'm the man. (laughs) Like in the Aaron Brockovich movie, like we are the bad guys. I am the bad guy 
here in this situation. Like <laughs> it was not good. <laughs> um, there was just a point where I was like, this is, uh, this is dangerous. <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> um, wow. So what did you do with that awareness? You kept your job. I kept my job. Well, I mean, I, I was only there for like less than a year, basically, while I was kind of applying to divinity schools. And um, my fiance at the time was traveling around, going on residency interviews, and we were planning a wedding. And it was a, a very, very stressful year because we knew we were probably leaving Houston, but we didn't know where we were going. And um, we were sort of limited based on where I might be able to go to divinity school and where our seminary and where he uh, might match for residency. So um, we were just trying to figure out all of those things. Meanwhile, like, you know, I was still going through kind of the diocesan ordination process and meeting with the commission on ministry and all of the various people on it. And, um, you know, kind of trying to convince them to let me go to seminary. <laughs> Meanwhile, I believe there was like a bishop transition in the Diocese of Texas at that point as well, which also kind of creates some stress for those in the discernment process. Yeah, yeah. When I went through uh, the discernment process in the Diocese of Northern California, we also had a bishop transition, but the bishop who wound up getting elected was uh, Barry Beisner, who had been the canon to the ordinary, um, which for those listeners out there who don't know all the Episcopal church insiders speak, the canon to the ordinary um, is very often like in charge of overseeing the the process of people who are on their way to ordination. So he knew all the paperwork and the process and the procedure. So he just kept it right on going. Uh, but everyone else that I knew, yeah, when, when there was a Bishop transition, yeah, everything gets put on hold for a year usually. Yeah, fortunately for me, I mean, I had a similar situation to yours in that um, Andy Doyle was elected and was an internal candidate to the diocese. So, um, you know, had had some awareness of what was going on and and my situation. Um, so through all of that, like my my parents had also moved from Dallas to the Nashville area for my mom's job. And we ended up visiting and really, really liking it and kind of that put Vanderbilt on our radar. Uh, Vanderbilt Divinity School had a lot of um, scholarship opportunities. <laughs> yeah. So that was good. Uh, that was an appealing thing as well. And uh, I was really interested in sort of the academic rigor alongside their kind of social justice commitments. Um, and it was somewhere that my then fiance felt was a good, would be good for him as well in his training. And um, so we, that kind of ended up being our first choice. And there was a big kind of hullabaloo in the commission on ministry and was the bishop going to let me go to Vanderbilt and all of this kind of back and forth. And at one point, one of the members of the commission kind of like cornered me and was like, the bishop is never going to let you go to Vanderbilt. Um, and then when I met with Andy Doyle, he was like, yeah, that makes sense. You have my blessing to go to Vanderbilt. <laughs> well, a lot of people use the bishop uh, in, in nasty ways sometimes. Yeah. So Vanderbilt is not, that's not an Episcopal church. 
It is not. No. Methodist? Is it affiliated? It is no longer affiliated. It was previously, I mean, it went one point in its history, Methodist. Um, So there was a very large Methodist contingent there, as well as a number of Disciples of Christ um, and uh, some other folks as well, including including me and and a a handful of other Episcopalians, actually, enough that we uh, were able to kind of put together some uh, we put together like an Episcopal liturgic seminar uh, for for those of us who were interested in that. Um, so it worked out. Yeah, you have to learn how to do it the right way, right. not like not like those Methodists or whatever. Right, <laughs> <laughs> dear Methodist listeners, I uh, sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> so how how has this this process like since sixteen or so? until this point when you're um, kind of on the cusp of going off to seminary, how has your, like uh, your, your sense of yourself as being called grown and shifted? Like, are you growing comfortable with this idea of filling uh, the role? Um, Is it more and more terrifying? Is it more and more peaceful? Yeah, I think for me, um, a lot of it was, I had like, I had kind of this goal and I'm really good with a goal and I'm good at kind of working towards a goal and just kind of putting my head down and getting the things done that need to get done. Um, and so it was really, you know, during the kind of seminary divinity school process, when you're getting into doing things like CPE, where you're actually doing ministerial work or you're doing field education or contextual education or whatever um, seminaries are kind of calling it these days. And actually I did my field education at the parish where I am currently serving. (laughs) (laughs) That's very convenient. (laughs) Yeah. And um, I had, I had attended here for a little bit and I'd sung in the choir and um, I really loved this community and uh, um, the the priest who was here at the time was a great mentor and really kind of let me, uh, you know, take the reins on, on my learning. And basically, I remember kind of telling him, I want to, what I want to do in my field ed is just like, get comfortable being up at the altar, get comfortable being in the pulpit, um, as if one ever kind of really gets comfortable. But... <laughs> I wanted to have enough of that experience where it wasn't something that, um, I mean, and again, being, having training as a performer, being in front of people was not a real issue for me. That was something I had been used to. Um, But yeah, I mean, the whole like, okay, am I moving the right way? Am I doing this thing um, correctly is, uh, was a big part of what I wanted to, to learn and accomplish. And I remember during that process of being in field education, I said to somebody, it was like, this is really the kind of church that I could see myself as the rector of someday. Um, thinking like it wouldn't be necessarily this church, but a church like it in another city or, um, or whatever. (laughs) Well, God was listening apparently. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) So seminary. So off you go to Vanderbilt for seminary. What was that like, those seminary years? Yeah, again, I, um, 
it's it's almost hard to remember because I think I've just blocked it out. <laughs> oh. I mean, uh, not not for any particular reason, but I was I was very newly married. Um, my husband was a, a medical resident, which meant that he was working just like eighty to a hundred hours a week. Um, again, I was really just kind of like, okay, I'm gonna put my head down and do the best I can. And um, you know, up to that point, I'd always been a very, very good student. Um, and I got to graduate school and I remember in one of the classes, you know, the professor said something along the lines of like, well, you really need to get into a group and kind of divide up the reading and, um, work together. And I thought, um, no, thanks. Like I I'm good at doing all the reading. I can get this done. And then after the first semester, I was like, oh, that was a huge mistake. <laughs> um, well, you it, learned. <laughs> yeah, I learned. <laughs> I learned. Um, but I, you know, I was in a place, Vanderbilt, I mean, everyone was was very smart. Um, it was a place where I did feel a little bit isolated, one, as an Episcopalian, and two, as somebody who was pretty certain that I was called to parish ministry uh, or congregational ministry. And um, I mean, I greatly admire my, um, my divinity school colleagues who are off, you know, doing all kinds of things, working at denominational publishing houses and um, nonprofits and uh, other kinds of ministry in the world. Uh, But there was a very, fierce, uh, you know, concern about like, oh, church, church kind of, (laughs) um, congregations and, um, denominational bodies and, and things like that. So. But you felt definitely called to parish ministry. How, how did you know? How did, how was that made clear to you? Um, I mean, for one thing, it was really one of the only things that I'd ever kind of seen. Mm. Um, and I was pretty sure just from, from other experiences, like I'd done, you know, some in, summer internships and stuff like that um, at like social service agencies and, and things like that, that um, I was like, you know, I really, I, I love the, the local church. I love the congregation. Um, and I, I mean, in the ensuing few years, I definitely considered other things. And, um, at one point after I did a year long CPE residency, I thought, well, you know, I could, um, I could do chaplaincy. Like, I think that I find that very fulfilling and, and, um, like it's good ministry. But to me, it was always one of those things where I was like, I could do chaplaincy for like 10 years. And then I, I think that I would be done <laughs> with that form of ministry, at least hospital chaplaincy. Uh, yeah. I definitely also considered school chaplaincy and even at one point kind of applied to a few uh, school chaplaincy positions, um, which I did not get. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there must've been a good reason for that. Whatever, whatever the Holy Spirit has decided. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, 
So do you think that going to Vanderbilt prepared you well enough for ministry in the Episcopal Church context? Or how much of that have you had to kind of bolt on afterwards? Yeah, I mean, I think for for me, it worked because I had um, just such a long history in the Episcopal Church. And I also had kind of the musical training piece and familiarity with music and liturgy in a way um, that I think, you know, I had friends in divinity school who either had just kind of come to the Episcopal church or had come to the Episcopal church in divinity school and were considering ordination. And, you know, they had a lot more work to do than I did. (laughs) So I wouldn't necessarily say that like Vanderbilt prepared me well for being in ministry, like in the Episcopal church, but I had enough of a background that um, it wasn't an issue. In fact, I did not do an Anglican year. So that's my, another confession. Okay. I I don't know if you're going to get in trouble for that or not. You seem to be doing well enough. And just people, a lot of people, when they hear I went to Vanderbilt, they say, oh, where did you do an Anglican year? And I'm always like, oh, I didn't do one. (laughs) Um, So you finished at Vanderbilt. You obviously got ordained. Uh, How was, how did you find the ordination process? Just the, from the, not from the seminary side of things, but the diocesan commission on ministry relationship with your bishop, that sort of side of things. Yeah, um, I really, I enjoyed the parish discernment process um, in my parish where I had um, a number of people, some who I knew, some who I didn't know at all, um, really kind of sitting down with me and and asking me questions and thinking through things with me uh, that were really valuable. And the diocesan process, again, being in the Diocese of Texas, which is just so big, um, it was very daunting. <laughs> um, so and, the Diocese of Texas, um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to describe it via an audio medium for people who might not know. So it, it's basically everything south of Dallas and Fort Worth, right? Yeah, like and kind of Waco from Tyler. and Austin. Tyler to Austin. So there's um, the Diocese of West Texas, which is San Antonio, kind of on, um, but kind of that big swath of Southeast Texas. Okay. So including Houston and Austin. Houston, Austin, Tyler. Yeah. Yeah. And do you you know how many parishes are in the diocese? It's like 400 or something like that. (laughs) It's a lot. I mean, there are like what, three bishops, like two, you know, one diocesan and two suffragan, I think. It's a, it's a big, it's a big place. Yeah. So did you get lost in the, in the system, lost in the shuffle or did, do they have a a pretty good um, mechanism for, for taking care of you as you go through? Yeah. I felt that there, there was a pretty good mechanism for taking care of me. And, um, Again, my campus missioner was my sponsoring priest, and he was on the board of examining chaplains and um, was really helpful in advocating for me and and making sure that I wasn't getting lost. And there was um, 
at the same time, going through the process at the same time as I was, was a friend of mine who had been three years ahead of me at Rice. And so, um, you know, we kind of would commiserate and carpool to Camp Allen from Houston for our various meetings. Um, so that was, that was good to kind of have a, a buddy. <laughs> yeah. So you got ordained. What I got ordained. Yeah. yeah. So when I moved to Nashville, um, it looked like we were, you know, not going to go back to the Diocese of Texas. Mm-hmm. So at one point, my bishop in Texas met with the bishop here in Tennessee and kind of said, hey, um, I've got someone for you. <laughs> she um, looks like she's going to kind of stay there because of her husband's job um, at Vanderbilt. And, you know, could would you take her, basically? <laughs> and... <laughs> Um, <laughs> you were just left in a, in a basket on the front steps of yeah. houses in the house. <laughs> or, it's, or it's just like, um, you know, being traded from like a football team or something. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, a lot of that was pretty anxiety provoking as well. I, my canonical residency stayed in the diocese of Texas. My ordination to the diaconate happened in Texas. Uh, but I was doing all of that from Nashville. And when I graduated from divinity school uh, here, the bishop basically kind of said, well, we don't really like have anything for you in terms of a parish. So um, I freaked out and (laughs) didn't really know what to do. And I talked to a few people and they said, well, go ahead and see if there is um, a spot available in the clinical pastoral education residency class. And um, there was. And so I signed up for that for a year because I figured, okay, like doing doing any ministry is better than, than doing none. Um, so I uh, did that. Was also like kind of a very, very part-time youth minister at um, St. David's Church here in Nashville. And so I was still getting to preach and um, be involved in a local community. And um, that, that was a a long year. And I don't really know. I think about like, how did I do all of that? (laughs) Um, Between the CPE residency at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital and um, also work in a church and on call and, uh, all of that, but um, it was it was great in some ways. I the summer after I graduated, I was the camp chaplain at our. Um, it's not exactly our diocesan camp because it draws from the other diocese in Tennessee, um, uh, Camp Gaylor Maxson. And I remember, like all through Divinity School, you know, people kind of saying things like, "Oh, ministry is so hard. Ministry will burn you out. Uh, you really have to take care of yourself." Like you know, ministry is just like the worst, basically. And then my first gig out of divinity school was camp chaplaincy, which was amazing. Like I got to like sing and talk about Jesus with kids and go hiking and swimming and dance. And just like, I had the best time. And I was like, Hey, if this is ministry, I don't know what all these people were complaining about. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you do that f- full time? 
Or just um, I mean, it was like a for a four week period, oh, okay. six yeah. week, five week, something like that. So. Yeah, I love Camp Chaplaincy. I did not expect to like it because my own high school years were terrible. And then when I was in the Diocese of Lexington, right after seminary, I had to. It was required that I um, go and be a camp chaplain for the the high school camp. And I showed up just dreading it because I thought this is going to be like high school all over again and nobody's going to like me and I'm going to be miserable. And man, it it was great. It was great. Yeah. I mean, I kind of had the same experience. Like I was not like a camp kid, like growing up. Um, but being on the other side of that as an adult, I was like, this is really fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's basically your first year, your CPE residency, which is, so that's basically like working as a chaplain in the hospital. You get yeah. paid for that, right? Unlike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, it was at that point, basically the same that I had made for at the insurance company. So, (laughs) um, yeah, that was, that was a really great experience. A lot of times when I tell people that I was the resident at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital, they look at me and they go, oh, that must've been so hard, you know, because you think like, oh, sick kids, um, which, which is hard. And it, you know, some of that was, was awful to kind of see and witness. Um, but I didn't quite have the same reaction to that as friends of mine that had kids. Uh, so at that mm-hmm. point I was like, well, seems like this is kind of a blessing that you know, I don't have kids. These are not my kids that are sick, you know, um, and suffering, but, uh, you know, we, I got to see, I got to see a lot, a lot of things that, um, you know, especially being in a children's hospital, a very large children's hospital, um, you know, in addition to things that you might expect, like uh, heart issues and cancer and things like that. There were also, um, you know, the abuse to see some... um, some of the abuse was probably the hardest stuff. Did you ever in that either at seminary or in that first year when you didn't wind up in a parish like you would expect it to, did you ever have a moment where you thought I've made a big mistake? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, and I didn't kind of know like what to do about it. Like, not that I didn't think, uh, I would be ordained or there was a moment of just like, oh, this is going to look different than I kind of thought it would. Because I had grown up hearing and in high school when I was doing kind of ministry internships and in college when I was doing ministry internships and things like that, all I heard about was how much of a clergy shortage there was, um, how they desperately needed young people to, to become clergy in the Episcopal church. And so I kind of thought like, well, here I am, you know, um, give me a church and, and I'll go to town. And, uh, I, because of my husband's position, I did not have the geographical flexibility that I might have had otherwise. Um, but I was, I was pretty disheartened, um, when, 
I kind of didn't have much of a position after, after I graduated and kind of had to really scramble. Do you, uh, do you think that, that there's still mm, pressures in the church that make it harder for, uh, for a, a young person who's also a woman? Uh, you know, does that, does that make it harder? Oh yeah. <laughs> um, definitely. And, and yet like, I, I don't think my difficulties had much to do with that. Okay. My particular difficulties didn't have much to do with that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I was ordained to the priesthood at um, 27. And once I got into the parish and was the only clergy person in the parish, there was a little bit of of resistance and a little bit of kind of like, well, what do you know? You know, you're so young. Um, yeah. Yeah, sometimes the church wants young people, but doesn't want their uh, opinions. (laughs) (laughs) Or to kind of deal with the realities of their lives, which, um, you know, I fortunately did not have many, you know, student loans or anything. But had I had I had them, um, you know, I might not be in parish ministry today because, you know, I could have easily seen taking, um, another kind of, of job or position just to be able to kind of make ends meet and make those student loan payments. Yeah. I think, uh, in about two more weeks, we will be all done with my student loan payments and I cannot wait. It's going to feel very freeing. Of course, then we have other things to pay for, but, um, (laughs) yeah. So you eventually did wind up in a parish, I did. So as um, the great thing about the CPE residency was that it gave me um, a salary for a year and, and training. And um, really, I, I do think for me, that was one of the best things that could have happened to my ministry to kind of have that year of, I don't know, almost kind of like consolidation between like the things that I learned in divinity school and doing kind of actual ministry on the ground. And also, um, I mean, I just remember my CPE supervisor just saying all the time to me, like, own your authority, like you're called, um, just because you're young or a woman or whatever, like, doesn't mean that, uh, you can kind of abdicate that authority that's, that's been given to you by, by God and by the church. So, Um, as I kind of came to the end of that year, I thought, well, gosh, maybe I should, um, there was kind of, there were some chaplaincy positions that were sort of opening up and I thought maybe I should look into that, um, kind of was really exploring my options and what, uh, what God might be calling me to. And then I got a call from the diocesan office and they said, we think we have a church for you. And I said, okay, like, tell me a little bit about it. And um, it was a small church in kind of an, an exurb of Nashville in a town called Lebanon, 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 like Lebanon, Tennessee, home of the Cracker Barrel. And, <laughs> and I was like, uh, um, this is definitely not what I had imagined. Again, like I kind of thought 
going into divinity school, all throughout divinity school, I remember thinking like and praying, just God, please don't put me alone in a small church, especially for my first call. And here was this church where I would be alone (laughs) in a small church as the only clergy person. Um, It was a very, very part-time position, which was also something I had some anxiety about. Um, and, And it was a little bit of a commute, like I wasn't going to be living in the town where the church was, and it was about 35 miles away. Um, so that was, that was a concern, but I went and I met with the vestry and we kind of interviewed each other and both decided that it felt like a good fit. Um, and I, so I became the priest in charge there, um, with a two year letter of agreement and, uh, really loved a lot about that position in that community and getting to do ministry in a parish. Um, and, and it was like also really terrifying. (laughs) Uh. Tell me about the terrifying. What did you find terrifying? Um, because I was basically in charge and I didn't always felt, feel like I knew what I was doing. (laughs) And, um, you know, was re- especially that first, the first couple of years was really reliant on the congregation to kind of tell me like, we do this thing this way, or we do, we have this event or, um, we do this kind of thing on Christmas or whatever. And inevitably it would kind of be like, this happens all the time in churches where you say, Oh, well, how, what do you do? Do you do anything special for, I don't know. I'm just using an example. Ash Wednesday. And the the church will say, no, no, no. Do you just do, you just do the thing the way that you want to do it. And then you go ahead and do that. And a week later you hear a bunch of complaints about how you didn't sing the hymn that you always sing for Ash Wednesday or whatever. (laughs) Yep. I've been there. (laughs) So there was a lot of adjustment. Um, just in that kind of realm. So you were hired with a two-year letter of agreement. Were you there for two years or did you extend that? Uh, I was there for two years. As we came to the end of the two-year mark, I thought, um, you know, I'm not done here yet. And the bishop basically felt the same way. And Mm -hmm. so um, I signed another two-year letter of agreement. And that, um, you know, the third year was good. By the fourth year, I was like, I think I need to start exploring, you know, what's next. Uh, I had actually taken, submitted my name to some searches and was really hopeful that those would go somewhere and they didn't. And that was pretty pretty disappointing for me. And I had, um, again, definitely some kind of moments of like, what am I doing? Is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? Um, maybe I wasn't ever supposed to be a priest or a parish priest or, or whatever. And, um, then after, after the fourth year of ministry there, I was like, I've, I've really kind of got to get out. (laughs) Um, 
uh, it wasn't anything about the community itself or um, me. It was just, I had kind of hit a, a ceiling of what I was able to do or accomplish there. And this was right around the time of the 2016 election. And that had kind of stirred up a lot of a lot of political stuff in a way that I um, hadn't quite realized or read. And uh, I, this was a, a congregation that was in a very conservative area, but was very mixed in terms of the people that attended there. And even as cautious as I thought I was being in terms of my own views, um, it still got read as, um, you know, that I was a liberal. <laughs> yeah. I have heard that. Um, I experienced it in my own parish. I've heard it from a lot of places. And I think it's um, the people in the congregations have been feeling pulled to one side or the other. So I think even if the preaching tries to be as balanced and as middle of the road and as embracing of everything as, as you could possibly be. Um, it's just a side effect of the divisiveness of the times we live in is that everyone is feeling pulled one way or another. And um, I, I think it's inevitable, sadly, at this point. So, I mean, we we just live in times when when everybody's convinced that somebody else is wrong and i hope we get through it pretty soon yeah yeah it was pretty frustrating because i really tried to um i mean i tried to self censor i tried to really ask myself the hard questions when i was putting together a sermon about you know is this am i taking this out of the Bible or scripture or theology and not just imposing my own kind of political viewpoint on it. And, um, and, and even still, even kind of doing all of that work, it still got read as me advocating for certain things. (laughs) Yeah. But, and, and of course, you know, the gospel has its own political perspective and I think that every politician and every political party falls short of the glory of God as Roman says, but inevitably some politician is going to be further away from that ideal. And it's just, it's very hard to preach the gospel without appearing to take sides because I don't think um, we're not always uh, the same distance away from the gospel. I'm trying to be very (laughs) diplomatic, but sometimes uh, there's going to be a politician who uh, is, um, or an administration or a set of policies that are much further away uh, from the kingdom than normal. Uh, so yeah. yeah, I mean, we can't we can't be neutral, and I guess we can't keep everyone happy. Yeah, and and there were some you know people in that congregation who were Republicans, and they, um, but but you know we agreed on kind of the like the foundations of like, hey, we should take care of the poor and the vulnerable and, um, you know, what we disagreed on maybe how that might happen. And those yeah. were people that I could have fruitful conversations with. Um, but 
if the question was whether or not we should, whether the we is the church or individuals or whether we as the government take care of the poor and the vulnerable, like when that's a question, um, that's that's a frustrating place to be as a minister. <laughs> so speaking of trying to keep balanced uh, across controversial topics, you have written a book. I did. This seems like a great segue into this book that uh, it's called Pro-Choice and Christian, which immediately is kind of, it, it, in, in America today, that seems as though it's an impossibility. Uh, yeah, that's, um, that's kind of the like, what? No, you can't do that. You can't. <laughs> Tell me about um, the book. Yeah, so the book, uh, the book found me. Um, I had through some connections from divinity school had begun writing for ministry matters, which is a website web magazine out of the United Methodist publishing house. Um, though it's, it's pretty intentionally interdenominational mainline Protestant in its, uh, leanings. And I'd written an article for that just kind of, um, expressing a little bit of of dismay but also kind of my own viewpoint that uh one that I didn't quite feel comfortable with a lot of the rhetoric out of the kind of pro choice side but also was very deeply committed to maintaining access for reproductive care of all kinds um for women based on what my Christian values were, uh, and so, and kind of seeing that, you know, nobody ever wants an abortion in the sense that they want to be in a situation where they're making that decision. Um, and so how can we as, as Christians ideally working together, um, you know, go further, go kind of beyond the, the pot shots at one another and really look at what what are evidence-based ways for reducing abortions and looking at things like, you know, adequate sex education and um, being able to help, uh, help mothers who may find themselves with unexpected pregnancies, like what might they need to make a decision to keep that pregnancy and and ultimately give birth. Um, because as, can I, how, how, can I curse on this podcast? Well, yeah, yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll bleep out anything particularly serious. I want to not get the, uh, the explicit tag on, on iTunes, but oh, okay. Paul Castelli was on here and he was uh, swearing up a storm. Okay. Uh, uh, Cause I just want to say <laughs> as Americans, we do a really, really job of caring for mothers and young children and families. I mean, looking at our record in terms of parental leave and maternal leave and what, um, it's just, it's pathetic and it's horrible. And, um, if we really, really care about the unborn, the way that we say we do and, uh, promoting life, um, which I think, we can as Christians and still recognize that there are situations where abortion is, is the best option. Um, then we need to get behind kind of those policies. What's the reception been to the, I mean, there are not a lot of books out there that kind of defend 
a pro-choice ethical position from a Christian perspective. So that means, I imagine, uh, you've attracted a lot of responses. Yeah, um, some of them, you know, are not great. <laughs> yeah. uh, I did get um, a, a a feature article in on LifeSite News, which is a mostly Catholic-leaning, very anti-abortion website, uh, which led to some some very nasty emails and Facebook messages and people telling me that they were going to like let my bishop know or like that they were going to try to convince the Episcopal church to like defrock me, which, you know, like, honey, come on. Um, you don't know very much about the Episcopal church. If you think that this is what's going to get me defrocked. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, your book is essentially a kind of, uh, a defense of, of what the official Episcopal church position is on, on abortion which is remarkably nuanced and I love it. And I keep trying to explain it to people because, you know, I get asked, you know, so what do we believe? What do we teach about abortion? And I show them this thing and they look at it and they read it and they say, so are we pro-choice or pro-life? And I say, well. Both. Both. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So uh, threatening, uh, (laughs) threatening your bishop, on you. It just doesn't seem like a good strategy. Right. Um, but you know, more and more I hear from people that, uh, are just really grateful that I wrote it. And those are the, those are the comments that I treasure in my heart. Um, you know, that really are, are thankful for the nuance and, um, grateful for that. Somebody was willing to kind of tackle such a, a difficult topic. Um, yeah. in a way that I hope is, is generous to, to both sides. Um, again, as we were kind of talking about, there is a lot of sort of demonization of other, um, whatever the other side of the aisle is. And, you know, in my book, it was kind of like, well, let's, let's do the best reading of this that we can, you know? Yeah. Um, let's assume that people who are anti-abortion are, are that way because they do think that life starts at conception, whatever that means to them, um, and should be valued and protected. And is that a position that we can really arguably go against? Um, or does it need a little, you know, just a little more nuance and a realization that like, well, circumstances where we live in a fallen world and we're fallen human beings and um, it's not always the best, best thing to, to bring a child into the world for some people in some situations. Well, so now you are at St. Anne's in Nashville. Mm -hmm. So you eventually did leave that first parish uh, I did. did find a new a new place to go. Yeah, so in fall of 2017, my entire life blew up. Um, <laughs> my husband uh, basically decided that he did not want to be married to me anymore, and I was really only able to do the ministry that I was able to do in Lebanon because of um, being basically financially supported 
by him and being on his health insurance and and all of those great things uh, that we do. So um, that was definitely a really big crisis for me uh, personally and spiritually and professionally. And at some point when I didn't know where I was going to go, but I knew I couldn't stay at uh, Epiphany in Lebanon, um, you know, I met with the bishop and kind of talked through my options. And basically the canon to the ordinary suggested that I uh, look for secular employment. Oh. Yeah, (laughs) that was not a thing that felt very good. Um, and in the middle of all of that, the senior warden here at St. Anne's, who was somebody that I'd known, um, from my time here, gave me a call and he said, uh, you know, will you meet me for coffee? And I thought, yeah, you know, absolutely. And he, (laughs) we met for coffee and he was like, nobody knows that I'm here. Like we're not officially meeting together. (laughs) He's like, I don't want anyone to know. Was he wearing a disguise, like you know, show you know, glasses? Yeah, a little mustache and <laughs> sitting uh, behind a newspaper. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but he asked me if I would consider being St. Anne's interim rector. And I mean, I was like, hell yes. Uh, <laughs> like not only yes, but hell yes. Um And he was like, okay, well, you know, really like think about it and pray about it. And um, I'll kind of talk to the vestry a little bit because they had, at that point, the rector had retired in July and I, this was late September and they had no kind of interim rector. And um, eventually, you know, I interviewed for the position and was really kind of counting. I I like, I needed this more than I needed like anything else. Um, like everything else was kind of falling into place a little bit. And, um, all that was missing was like, I just, I needed a job. I needed some, something to do and like a paycheck as well. Um, and I really sort of thought this will be great. I can be the interim rector at St. Anne's for like two years. And then I will be able to kind of leave Nashville, move out of town, um, and kind of really see what's next. And, um, I have now been here for two years. I am no longer the interim rector. I am the priest in charge. (laughs) Um, and I think we all knew that it would be a good fit when I came on and it has just been, um, kind of an even better fit than we imagined. So it's been great. It's my first. You're engaged again. I am. I am engaged to be married. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Yes. It, uh, everything really, really fell apart for me. And, um, you know, God, God is good and God is faithful. And it has been, I've been able to like rebuild a life that I really, really love and that I feel, um, is is more faithful to my calling and um to you know who God is calling me to be and so that's been really healing and wonderful and that's been um the whole early part of my ministry was was really a struggle for me because i i wasn't ever full time i um wondered if i'd ever 
you know, was I really called to parish ministry? And I was trying to sort of start becoming more at peace with that, like with exploring other ways of ministering, whether that was through um, writing or speaking or retreat leading or uh, all of those kinds of things. And, and now that I'm doing full-time parish work, I was like, oh yeah, this is what it, this is what it was supposed to be the whole time. Maybe you were just getting warmed up for a couple of years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what do you think uh, the greatest joy and the greatest sorrow, the hardest thing about your calling? We'll do the greatest joy first. What's the the one best part of your vocation? Oh, gosh. The one best part of my vocation, I think just every week I get to... Um, put the body of Christ into everyone's hands and um, to, to see every member of the congregation come forward and to, to, we use real bread at St. Anne's to break off a hunk of that bread and press it into their hand and um, tell them that this is the body of Christ and the bread of heaven is, is just truly amazing every single Sunday. Never gets old. No, nope. So what's the hardest part? I think the hardest part, particularly about being a solo clergy person, which is all that I've ever really done, uh, is, is being a generalist and Mm. not really being very good at any particular thing. I mean, that's not true, but I mean, having to do so many things and be passable at all of them, um, it it can really be a struggle and it just always kind of feels like you're failing or letting somebody down. Hmm. That's so relatable. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that sounds really dark, but it, it isn't always. (laughs) Well, I think that's my experience that. I think Robert Hendrickson, did, I don't know if you saw it, but he posted something somewhere about like being in a position where we've got like accountants in the parish who are evaluating our accounting skills and professional singers in the parish who are evaluating our chanting skills and professional like nurses evaluating our pastoral care skills. Um, and so we're, 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 I think he said it's, it's lovely to bridge so many different vocations but at the same time it's like we're we're equal equally amateurish at everything we do yeah but you know uh, that's that's where grace fills in the blanks mm-hmm. um how how's your prayer life how has your prayer life changed since i guess since you were 16 and yeah out right. at the methodist church <laughs> um, pestering um, the pastor. I think I've just been able to just fall in love more and more with God. Um, and going like, especially going through like a pretty difficult time where everything was kind of topsy turvy. Um, if I had not had the foundation of of prayer and spirituality that I did. Like, I don't, I don't know what I would have done. Um, but it was really one of those moments where like the rubber hit the road (laughs) 
in terms of like, okay, I know I say these things and I preach them every week. Um, but do I really believe them? Cause now is when, you know, we see if I really believe them. <laughs> um, so that, um, that's been part of it. Um, I think one of the struggles again of kind of being a, a, a leader and a clergy person is, um, that I don't get to corporately worship as much as I, uh, certainly did before I was an ordained person. Um, but that is, that's something that's in my personal rule of life that I will corporately worship at least once a month somewhere with somebody, <laughs> with somebody other, um, you know, and you usually mean, that's our, our clericus gathering has Eucharist. Um, like where you can just be a participant and not a leader. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I've talked to so many recent seminary graduates who say that the thing that they didn't know they were going to miss was that at seminary, you can pray the offices together, morning prayer and evening prayer. And then you leave and it's really hard to find parishes where that's a practice. Yeah. Um, sometimes I just sneak into the back of one of the Roman Catholic parishes here in town uh, and um, just sit there and experience, you know, experience the liturgy without any expectations that I'm involved. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then I've been asking everyone this for a, for a piece of popular culture, a book or a music or movie or video game or uh, app. I don't know, whatever, whatever you recommend, give us something fun to, to discover. Uh, so my fiance and I have, uh, very recently gotten into TikTok as an app. Oh, (laughs) um, and, and it's just one of those things that is very like lighthearted and funny, at least the videos that pop up on my feed, um, (laughs) And and enjoyable that is kind of a way of like unwinding a little bit. And it's a little bit, um, my fiance and I kind of send each other little TikToks that we think the other person would like. Um, you know, usually they're like animal based. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so that's been a, a nice thing that's that's like kind of fun and lighthearted. <laughs> When sometimes so, I'm not having a very fun or lighthearted day. <laughs> so check out TikTok. I check have not. <laughs> all of the uh, kids in my youth group are all over TikTok and Snapchat. I have just, just this last year, got into Snapchat. And I still have no idea what I'm doing. So. <laughs> but that's okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, I'm going to put links to ways to get a hold of you and find uh, your book if anyone wants to buy the book. Uh, which again is called Pro-Choice and Christian Reconciling Faith, Politics, and Justice. And it is under my previous name, which is Kira Schlesinger. Okay. Well, thank you. We've taken up way more than an hour of chatting. but (laughs) Hopefully you'll edit this. (laughs) Yeah. But it's been great to hear your story. So um, let's uh, talk again, but not for another couple of years and on the different podcasts. (laughs) 
So, <laughs> hey, thank you. Yeah, thanks right. for having me. Well, thank you again for listening to my conversation with the Reverend Kira Austin Young. Again, if you'd like to get in touch with her, be sure to look in the show notes for links to her Twitter profile. Speaking of Twitter, you can reach me on Twitter at Apple Tree Pods. And on Facebook, we have a page at Apple Tree Podcasts. Feel free to like and subscribe and review and share this with anyone who might be interested. The intro music is Cheerful by Bird, Bird, Bird. And the closing music that you're hearing in the background right now is called St. Mary's Falls by Tom Ganaway. Again, thank you so much for listening. I'm Chris Arnold, and I'll talk to you next time on This Calling. <laughs>